Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's My Favorite Case. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case that they worked on. Some are high profile, some you have never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case is about the cat lady versus the firefighter, which made some huge headlines. The man who prosecuted this case is our guest. Joshua Ritter is now a criminal defense attorney, but back in 2015, he was a deputy district attorney in the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Josh, so I know why this is my favorite case, but why is it your favorite case? You know, it's it's funny because... It certainly wasn't the most serious case I had at the office. I mean, there was it's not murder. There's no dead bodies. It certainly wasn't the most complex case that I ever dealt with. But talk about a case with all of the elements that make for good human drama. You know, you have these characters that I'm, you're, you're, we're going to get into on both sides of this that are so conflicted. You have this firefighter. You can't imagine a person who's chosen a more respectable a career path, who then commits what is a shocking crime, in my opinion. And then you have this woman who's, you know, out feeding cats. I don't know if you can think of a more kind of innocent behavior, who also has some some troubles of her own that lead to this just kind of moment. And that's why I think this thing will always stick with me. And it was all caught on camera. That's yeah. the amazing part. And when you hear the versions of what happened and then you see the surveillance camera, you're like, oh, my God, this really yeah. got so heated and out of control over neighbors fighting over feeding stray cats. So let me give you a little summary here so everyone can follow along. In September of 2013, a security camera captures a man and his mother his 70-plus-year-old mother, walking up to another woman who is sitting in her car. Now, the video appears to show the son and the mother punching and slapping 
the woman in the car until she passes out. It's extraordinary. I mean, the video, which we're going to play for you, is extraordinary. The argument is about feeding stray cats. The woman in the car is Rebecca Stafford, and she liked to feed the stray cats in the neighborhood in West Adams. All right. The man seen punching her in the video is Ian Ulian. Now, he at the time was an L.A. City firefighter whose house was right by where she used to like to come and feed the cats. And by his own admission, he said the stray cats were driving him insane. They were getting under his house. They were getting into crawl spaces. They were making a mess. And there was a horrible smell. In fact, you know, I just uh, read in the L.A. Times that there are 300,000 stray cats in the city of Los Angeles. Is that unbelievable? That is unbelievable. Because they're talking about that. Me neither. I was like, wow, there's a huge editorial about what to do about these stray cats. So it's it's very topical for people in L.A. (laughs) dealing with this problem. Sure. And so I'm just going to get to the charges and then we'll get to the case. So Ian Ulian was charged with felony assault and battery. His mother, who was 71 at the time, Lonietta Fontaine, was charged with accessory after the fact. And how in the world... Did you end up getting this case to prosecute? You know, wh- why right. did they choose you to prosecute this case? Right. So, I uh, lots of times people go get moved around the office, and when somebody gets transferred and you get transferred in, you get handed a stack of cases. And this was one of the stack that I got handed, and it was described to me, um, kind of how you put it. Said, "Hey, this firefighter and this lady feeding cats got into it, and she, he ended up knocking her out." And at first you're like, oh my God, that sounds horrible. But then you're thinking, okay, you're dealing with a firefighter. I'm sure there's going to be some way we can resolve this. I'm sure he's got no criminal history. We're not dealing with a career criminal here. Um, And it wasn't until I took a look at the video, and the video is really what makes this whole case. I took a look at the video and I was so floored by what I saw that I realized this is going to be far more complex to handle and far more serious because I don't think this is something we're going to be able to resolve in a way that would be something he could live with, uh, with his career. And that's kind of how things got started. The other part of it was oftentimes we'll get these cases and it'll have a media uh, case stamp on it. And usually what that There's means- There's a real is, stamp like that? It says yeah, media? No yeah, way. What media, is that? Yeah. I, I don't know how long they've been doing it, but I, I I don't know if they still do it. I mean, this was a while ago, but you get a case and you go, oh, and usually all that means is maybe the LA Times, some local newspaper has done a story on it and they kind of want to know how it resolves, but you don't really have any direct media contact. And so that's what I went into this thinking. And in fact, all the pre-trials that we went to, nobody from the media ever shows up. The day that we are about to start opening um, statements. We've already chosen our jury. In walks Channel 7 with their complete camera crew and a request to record this thing from gavel to gavel. And I'm sitting there in complete shock. The judge goes ahead and allows it. And all I'm thinking to myself is, thank God I got a haircut earlier that day because <laughs> I had no idea that you know this had the kind of attention it did. And I remember joking with the cameraman. I'm like, don't you guys have anything better to cover and he said nope you're it for the next couple of weeks so there we were every single day i would ride home on the train i was living in an area where i was commuting by train at the time and 
review what Channel 7's coverage of what I did in court that day was. It was a pretty surreal thing for my early career. Because what we're talking about is an assault case. And again, it's not the kind of case anyone would cover, let alone, I mean, these are the kind of cases that courts deal with every day, in and right. out, right? And All the time. People, and these people are not celebrities. They're no one of note. It's just what you described earlier. It's just who's ever heard of this? A firefighter and a woman feeding cats? And it just blew up and had all of this interest and went way, way beyond what I expected it to be. But you know what? It, nothing, I believe, can be as volatile and as potentially violent as a dispute between and among neighbors. Don't yeah. you think so in the yeah. world of crime? Those yeah. are the things that get totally out of hand. People yeah. go berserk over the garbage can that's in my driveway or the light or your leaves blew on. And, you know, and these things fester yeah. and fester and fester until one day someone explodes. And I kind of feel that this has those en elements Absolutely. that I think he's like, okay, lady, you have fed these cats for the last time. I'm done with you. Yeah. And yeah. You, you could tell that. That's exactly what had taken place, that this wasn't the first time he had spoken to her about that. That even came out in testimony, that they had had previous conversations. And you could tell that there were efforts made on both their sides to handle this in a very neighborly manner. And for whatever reason, they both had enough of each other that night, and it just exploded into something. I, I mean, I believe it was a complete anomaly in this man's life. I don't I don't think he went around with this kind of temper all the time. But I'm telling you, wait until you see this video. And it's just one of the most shocking, the way you phrased it, people snap. It's a pretty shocking way to snap. It is, especially when his mother then gets involved as well. Yeah. It's like a mother and son who's just like, that's it, lady. Yeah. I've had it with your cats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things is that, um, and and this is why I find video always so interesting in cases like this, they will make statements, both the suspect and the victim will make a statement about who punched who first. Sure. And video is always helpful here. So Ian, who's the firefighter, he claimed that it was Rebecca Stafford, the lady who was feeding the cats, who had attacked first and that he was defending himself and then defending his mother. Right. Crime Watch Daily covered this case as well. It wasn't just Channel 7 here in L.A., which is a great station who I used to work for. But Crime Watch Daily covered this case. And my friend and colleague, Pat Lalama, filed this report. Here is a clip which shows the beginning of the incident. Take a look and listen. At 12.20, he sees Stafford drive up in the green Jeep. It's feeding time. That was it. It was like, okay, this has to stop. I was there, but I wasn't feeding the cats. One of the cats was injured. It couldn't open or close its mouth. That's Ian in the white shirt, walking over to talk to Stafford. They both agree the exchange got heated, but that's all they agree on. She cursed me out, called me the F word. The straw that broke the camel's back is when she told me that she killed me. He said he was gonna kill the cats. And I told him that was against the law, and he said he didn't care. And that's when it got ugly. Okay, Josh, what do you make of that back and forth between the two of them? Yeah, this was this was a difficult part of the case too because you could see that he is having this internal struggle, right? You can see that he kind of makes his way over to the car 
and then he backs off and there's more exchanged words. And he, I, I think he returns to the car a couple of times. And it wasn't like this, he just came at her with immediate violence. But you could tell that things were escalating. And at some point, you know, like the clip says, things turned ugly. They turned very ugly. But that was something that certainly the defense focused on a lot was the efforts that he had made to try to defuse the situation. And part of the argument they made was, was, was well, she could have just driven away. And that's true. And I made the argument, well, he could have just walked away. And that's also true. I mean, this easily could have been a night that never made the news, never affected these people's lives, and they went on their way. But it didn't. And like we just saw, things did turn ugly. So, Josh, I'm curious. Did this have to go to trial? That's a process I'm always uh, very interested in. If yeah. this is a first offense for him... Uh, there was no serious injury, although it was without question assault. I, I'm not, I'm not debating that. Do you, did you try to settle this somehow? Yeah. So that, that's a great question, and not something that people always understand when they're watching these cases and wondering why they're at trial. We tried a lot to settle it. The problem was, we had to decide as an office, was this conduct misdemeanor or was it felony? Because his whole job depended upon that. And that was something that I struggled with quite a bit, is that realizing that we're not just going to convict a person of a crime here, but we might be ending this person's career. And it did. Um, it ended his career. Yeah. Yeah. And, and something I'd take no pleasure in. I mean, absolutely. Especially, like I said, I think he chose a very noble career path. I mean, he's out there saving us. You know, these are firefighters. You Little kids wave at their truck when they go by, you know? And so, like I said, we went back and forth a lot. And finally, uh, the conclusion we came to is, you know what? Sometimes it doesn't matter the entire person that you've lived, been and lived as up until that moment. You can make a decision at that moment that is so egregious that we just we cannot allow it to pass. And that's the difficult decision we had to make. And his response was and him and his legal team was. That's fine, but then we're putting 12 people in a box to decide this. He was not willing to plead to a felony, even if it involved no custody time. The felony was crucial to his career, and he made the choice that he had to make. But I, I stand by the choice that we had to make as well. Well, the other thing is, he claimed the entire time that he was provoked. Right. That, And again, you have the choice whether to pull your hand and your fist back. Right. right. You, you, that you have control over. So, you know, he did claim that. And I wonder if there was no videotape, I wonder if things would have played out completely differently. Oh, well, that was that was also a, a main factor and kind of why we arrived at the decisions we did. When Miss Stafford came to, she was laying in the street and she regained consciousness. She had no memory of what had taken place. The last thing that she remembers is them arguing, but she has no idea that he had ever struck her or pulled her out of that car. And what Mr. Yulian and his mother told her was, you fell down. And they got her back in that vehicle and they drove her home and they told her, you know, take care of yourself. And she was confused. And how did I fall down? And why do I have this bump on my head? And they said, oh yeah, no, you fell down. So Miss Stafford actually went several days thinking, 
I, I, it just doesn't feel right. I don't, my head hurts. Everything hurts. This doesn't feel like I just fell down. I don't understand. So she went to report it to the police and the police initially had nothing. It's like, okay, a lady who says she fell down and maybe it's a little suspicious. And it wasn't until the officers went out to that exact location, found that perfectly placed video camera and were able to get the, I mean, high definition footage that we see that they realize, oh no, she didn't fall down. This is, this is a crime that took place. And here's what's incredible. That camera was installed that morning. Can you believe it? I mean, what are the chances? Still can't believe that part of it. It's incredible. It is incredible. And also, it looks like they framed it perfectly. I mean, you this isn't like a view from across the street and through the trees. This is right on top of the action. Bingo. And you know what, Josh? I'm very suspicious of that. Okay? Uh, That is something, uh, as I was reviewing the surveillance tape and looking at this story... I'm telling you, Josh, you know, coincidence and crime, (laughs) right? Uh They're two C's that don't go together. Uh I I don't believe that there's a lot. There is some coincidence in life, but in crime, it's too suspicious. Yeah. You said it yourself. It's perfectly placed right there in front. What are the chances that this encounter is going to be caught at this very moment? I'm not saying it's a setup. I'm just saying it's very suspicious, and I don't believe in coincidence in crime. (laughs) I I I agree with you. I mean, it's I mean, you know, I it's this isn't the first case I've ever dealt with video, and like I said, every single time it's you think that oh, it was caught on video. It must be so easy to tell what's taking place. And I've had several cases that deal with video, and it's difficult to tell what's going on. This, aside from the fact that there's no audio on it. I don't imagine if you could have filmed it any better than it was filmed. I mean, it's right on top of everybody. And because it was high definition, we were able to slow this down frame by frame. Because another thing the defense did is, like you pointed out, they tried to say that Miss Stafford was the one who struck first. She's the one who provoked all of this. And so much of it came about, did she try to kick them? Did she hit his mom? Did he hit for her first? And so we spent a lot of time going frame by frame of like when, what is occurring when, because when you watch it, it's a matter of seconds, fractions of a second. Mm -hmm. And then they try to, you know, bring it all back to fractions of a second, frame by frame, what is taking place. It caused, it caused difficulty and something I'm sure we'll get into to the point that this trial, the first time it was in court, it hung. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. The jury could not figure it out. I want to show the video now for those of you who are watching. Those of you who are listening, we're always going to link to this so you can see this video. So as you said, at one point, the victim, Rebecca Stafford, passes out. This video to me is the most unbelievable thing I've seen. So in the video, you can see that Ian, the firefighter, so she passes out in in the street, out of the car. He scoops her up. And you can see in the video that he puts her in the car and kind of scoots her over, right? And then his mother gets in the car to drive her. So the mother, the mother gets in the victim's car, the cat lady's car, and Ian, the firefighter, gets into his car right behind and follows them. So this is a clip from Crime Watch Daily, which explains this part 
from both perspectives. Here's the clip. The video shows Ian taking what looks like two strong punches at Stafford. I swung and I missed. He hit me in the face twice in the car. He slugged me hard in the car. Ian's fury is unstoppable. I grabbed her and then I pulled her out of the car. Ian insists that after dragging Rebecca out of the car, he strikes but lands just one punch. I hit her once and that was it with my fist. I walked away. My mother said just lay there and she just, you know, nodded her head. I do not remember anything after he hit me in the car until I woke up on the ground. She got up on her own, own will. I helped her up, put her in the car. Just to be safe, me and my mother drove her home and made sure she was fine. For us, it was a bad situation. We're trying to make the situation better. You can actually see Ian's mother in the driver's seat of the Jeep and Ian following in his car behind. Rebecca acknowledges they did drive her home that night but says they lied to her about what happened. They told me I was acting crazy, that I was running around the car, that I was hitting his mom, and that I tripped and fell and hit my head on the car. When I see this clip and I hear their versions of it, it's astonishing to me. It's almost as if the firefighter in him comes out. He scoops up this woman who he's just been fighting with, picks her up ever so gently, puts her in the car. Mom comes in, you know, and they drive her away. They get her home. And the firefighter says, you know what? We're just trying to make a bad situation a little bit better. I I don't know. Is that like a mitigating factor? That, he, that they tried to be good after they looks yeah. like they caused this? Yeah, well, I, one of the things that was remarkable about that clip to me too is you see how strong he is. When he picks her up, it's obvious. And he was a very built guy. I mean, he, he worked out. You just see the strength that he has to be able to lift her up so easily and place her in that car. And the defense did try to make uh, uh, an issue about that. That look at they try to take care of her, they take her home, all of this kind of stuff. My point and my argument as a prosecutor at the time was, but you were a firefighter, you knew better, you could have rendered aid to this woman. She could have a concussion. There could be bleeding on her brain. This could be a very serious situation. And rather than call an ambulance, rather than rush her to the hospital, you tell her she's fine and just to go home. I mean. One of the things we talked about is that one of the one of the worst things you can do with someone who suffered from a concussion is have them fall asleep because oftentimes they just don't wake up from that sleep and it's a huge problem as far as brain injury. And so we we drew great attention to that that like don't be fooled into all of a sudden he's a very caring person. This was a cover up. This was this was to get him out of guilt and that alone. So why do you think that the first trial was a um, was a would you call it a hung jury deadlocked? Yeah. What would you call yeah, it? Was it? A, it was a hung jury. I can't remember what the split was. I I want to say it was ten to two for guilt. Um, so there was a couple of folks that we didn't convince that first time around. This is what I I've gone back and tried to figure this out a million times. Right, it drives you nuts because you go through this whole experience of putting on this trial and the cameras and the difficulty of it and. It was, it was a battle in court. This was not an easy trial to put on. And then you end up with a non-decision like this, and you're going to have to go through it again. It's 
never something you want to experience. But I think something happens when cameras get inside courtrooms, that jurors start thinking this is a little more important than it used to be when nobody was in here and cared about it. And I also think that there was this element of breaking down the video piece by piece by piece that led them to kind of go, well, I don't know. I don't, you know, maybe she does kick here. Maybe not. I don't know. It's difficult for me to decide and I can't decide. And therefore, I don't know if he's guilty or not. And that's why it was important to me on the second trial to not do that, to play this thing all the way through. You have to see it live in action. And it's, to me at least, absolutely clear what's taking place. I mean, in that clip you just showed, one of the parts that bothered me so much when I was trying to make a decision on this is how he pushes her head down and then slams close the door so that he has a better angle in which to punch her again. And you kind of lose that if you're looking at it frame by frame. But when you're watching it live take place, it, it, it takes your breath away. We actually have a clip of you in huh. court from your closing argument. This is from ABC7 here in Los Angeles, and they covered the trial every day, like you said. Here's a clip of you trying to convince the jury of your case. Now, this is the one where the jury did not agree with you, but here's your closing argument. Was it reasonable to rip this woman from her car, push her head to the ground, and level her with a punch so hard it knocks her unconscious. Is that reasonable? In Yulian was not defending himself or his mother that night. He was angry. No, he was full of rage. You know, the jury deadlocked after nine days of testimony in the first trial. That's a long trial. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it certainly went on longer than I would have expected when I was first looking at it. I mean, a case like this, an assault, it's a, you know, it's a fairly straightforward case. You would have thought a couple of days of testimony, but I think he testified alone for two or three days. It just dragged on and on and just became so much larger. It took on a life of its own that I didn't expect. And thanks for showing that clip. It also reminded me how long ago this was, because that's a much younger version of myself making those arguments. But you, you know, were a baby in the court. <laughs> I was. I was. And I was I was trying my best. I mean, I was trying to get across kind of that indignity that I felt I was hoping was shared by the jurors. And it it's funny, I, I was contacted by some of the jurors after this who who felt very strongly about the fact that it that it hung. They felt he was I was never contacted by the folks who who said not guilty, but the folks mm -hmm. who said guilty felt very strongly that this case was proven. And it's just, you know, that's, that's what happens with jury trials. You put 12 people in a room and it's very difficult to get them to agree to the same thing. So Josh, why then go for another trial? Right. Because do, is there some, you know, rule? Do prosecutors always automatically go for a second trial when a jury deadlocks? What was your thought process? No, it, it's, it's actually not that common. Um, usually if a, if a jury deadlocks, depending on the split, if you have a split of six to six, six guilty, six not guilty, that case is going to settle because that's kind of signaling to the prosecutor. You don't have as strong a case as maybe you thought you did. Now, cases that are super serious, like murder, 
they're going to retry that case because that you can't just dismiss something of that level of seriousness. But this case is not that serious. We're not looking for decades in prison. I mean, our, I think our offer was a few days in jail or something like that. It came down again to, is this felony conduct or is this misdemeanor conduct? And this, again, was an even more difficult decision the uh, second time around, because now I'm speaking to my supervisors and they're saying, Josh, it hung. Maybe, maybe this, maybe we don't have this case. And I forget how it all played out because it was so long ago, but I think I finally said, listen, give me one more shot. And one thing we did that I think did change the dynamic is we dismissed the charges against the mom. I think that was a mistake the first time around. The charges were based on the fact that she helped in this, you know, cover up that she convinced her she fell down and said, oh, you've been acting crazy. But I, I think in a case that already you have a sympathetic defendant as a firefighter, to then have his mother sitting there next to him through the whole thing, it just did not present well. And I did not feel good about proceeding on the second trial with his mom as a defendant. So we dismissed her. The case was a lot um, shorter. There were no cameras in the room the second time around. It was a different really? judge. Yeah. So wait a minute. There were no cameras because they didn't, no one was interested or the judge said no? I believe the second judge said no. Um, yeah, because it's up to the judge. And some of these judges yes. are like, I, I don't want it anywhere near my courtroom. And I believe that second judge said no. I know that our office at the time, I say our office, the office at the time had a policy of just kind of saying, you do what you want, Your Honor. And I believe that that judge said no, no, no cameras. And because of that, the trial was a lot quicker. We didn't have two defendants. The 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 drama of it wasn't kind of overwrought like it was the first time. And I believe the verdict came out within a couple of days. Wow. For for those um, who don't know what the process is for cameras in the courtroom, this is a life that I have lived for a very long time, <laughs> especially in Los Angeles. There's this whole process. It It is not automatic. What happens is you as a news organization, you have to fill out this this paperwork, this form, and you have to submit it to the judge in charge of the case. And the clerk also gets a copy of this. Then the judge has to sign off. The judge can decide, well, you know what? I I'll be okay with a photographer, a still photographer, but I'm not okay with a video. Or I'm okay with radio or audio, but I'm not so those are the options that the judge has. And then sometimes, depending on the judge, the judge will ask both the prosecutor and the defense attorney, how do you feel about it? Do you have any objections? Do you have any feelings? And sometimes, depending on the case, they will share that. But ultimately, it's up to the judge. And if the judge says no cameras in the courtroom, media have absolutely no recourse on that. You have right. every right to be in the courtroom reporting on it, and you can have a sketch artist in the courtroom, but there is nothing that you can do. It is all up to the judge. And that's how it happens. Yeah. It's it's very interesting. And yeah. in federal court, there is no option. Right. There is no, no, absolutely no recording devices allowed in federal court. Yeah. Yeah. Not to get on a tangent, but it's a, it's a funny thing because, you know, we want our courtrooms to be transparent, right? I mean, we want people to have trust in the system and how things are conducted. And this was all done fairly. And we want them to be invited inside to see that whole process, right? But there is 
it's you cannot deny that it changes the dynamics of a trial and things it just takes on like i said a life of its own and i was able to experience that on both sides having done it with the full coverage and then done it with no coverage it was entirely different trial Amazing. Now, I'm curious, because it involved a woman who was trying to feed stray cats, we have, not just here in Los Angeles, but across the country, very, very strong and vocal animal activists. (laughs) I'm wondering, did you get any pushback from the animal rights community? I didn't get pushed. Well, what I did have was a courtroom full of cat people i mean people would show up every day and they're wearing like cat pins and cat (laughs) a cat sweater and i mean there was this whole it like i said this took on a life of its own and a a whole group of people and they're like cheering me on like i'm defending the cat somehow or it was it was just so bizarre the whole thing (laughs) i'm sorry yeah no please it's it's worth it's worth the laugh it was a bizarre experience. Oh my God. When, you know, when you describe that, I mean, these are the things that, that I love to hear about cases. Yeah. These are the parts of crime cases that enough of us don't get a chance to, to pull the curtain and see what it's really like to try a case. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and where the cat people and no disrespect to the cat people, please. I have two rescued dogs. Right. I have won an award from the Humane Society for my animal rights work. Right. <laughs> please don't come after me. You've I love got animals. Bonapides. Yeah. I really do. I'll pull it out from the wall if I need yeah. to. Um, I, I, I just want to, you know, what, I mean, what was that like? Was that distracting or did you like feel like, oh my God, what if I let the cat people down? Yeah. Well, I mean, you bring up a good point. A lot of people have never seen a trial. Most trials, there's trials taking place, well, not with COVID, but you know, in normal times, there's trials taking place in almost every courtroom downtown Los Angeles. And almost every one of those courtrooms are completely empty. Aside from the lawyers, the judge and the jurors, the audience area is usually completely empty. Maybe one person sitting in there, and then you're kind of like, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, I go from that, what I was expecting, to literally a packed courtroom every day. And there were people from the community. There were other lawyers in the building because, you know, it gets around that, hey, this is being covered by the news every single day. And I've got my colleagues and some defense attorneys showing up to watch a few you know, witnesses testify. It was it was a surreal experience and something I just wasn't expecting. <laughs> I, ju- I just, I really, I can't imagine. Yeah. I really can't. Yeah. And so, um, what, what, did you get the same kind of support then from firefighters? I mean, if the cat people were there with their cat sweaters and their pins, were the firefighters out the, as well? No. Um, the fire department took a kind of hands-off approach to this whole thing because they, they were, there's a lot of political kind of ickiness to this whole thing for them. I, I was contacted pretty regularly by some, some supervisors in the department just to kind of know where things are headed and what our plans were as far as misdemeanor or felony, because they knew that was going to have an effect on his career and everything else. But the fire, it's not like we had a string of firefighters come in. Actually, now that I'm saying that, he did have a couple of firefighters testify on his behalf. And mm-hmm. so, you know, 
you know, to their credit, the defense is trying to do the best they can. And so a lot of this argument had to do with, I'm saying as a prosecutor, I don't think it's fair. You guys have these firefighters come in with their badge and their uniform and everything else and talk about what a great man this is. This isn't about him being a firefighter. This is about, did he commit a crime that's caught on tape? So there was a lot of contentious argument about some of these character witnesses that presented. And what about neighbors? Were they equally irate about the cats and agreed? It's like, look, this lady comes, feeds the cats. She's created a nuisance in this yeah. neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, was that side also being yeah. battled out in court? There was a couple of people who testified to the cats being a nuisance. I mean, the, they're stray cats. They, you know, they walked down the alley. It wasn't like this was some, you know, 20 you know, 200 cat deep pack that's running through the neighborhood. It's my understanding. It was like four or five cats that come around this little area in the alley where she used to leave them some kibble. I mean, it's just the whole thing, you know, it's, 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 it, it was hard for me to swallow that kind of evidence being presented as a defense. And I just kept on saying, that's all fine. Cats can be a nuisance, and we can all agree on this. This isn't about cats. This is about ripping some woman out of her car and beating her unconscious. That was the other thing. They, this, she never stepped out of her vehicle, and that was something I made a, a, a big point about. You're supposed. There's certain areas where you should feel a level of, of safety, right? Your own mm -hmm. home mm -hmm. and your own car. If you're in your car, you think, this is my safe space. You're not allowed to enter this without my permission. Mm -hmm. And she never left her car. She may have cursed him out and everything else, but he went to her. He pulled her out of her car. Again, that's why we kept on coming back to this has to remain as a felony. Well, finally, in May of 2015, Ian Ulian was convicted of assault and battery. You asked for a year in prison based on the reports that I saw. Ian's defense attorney said that this was totally out of character, that Ian was a firefighter who saved lives. He just snapped and his anger got the better of him. And the defense said that Ian even had to resign from the fire department and they had asked for no jail time. The judge ends up sentencing him to 180 days in jail, probation, community service, and anger management classes. Yeah. Does that seem fair? Uh, yeah, I mean, the judge kind of split the baby, you know. I, 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 like I said, I wasn't, we weren't coming into this case thinking this is the crime of the century and he needs to go to prison for the rest of his life. I mean, a year in jail is... I, I think plenty, you know, and, and I, I don't remember being all that indignant over the fact that the judge cut that in half. And, and we did realize there was, this was going to have consequences to his life. And the, and the fact that he did have to resign and it did affect his career and future. I, like I said, I don't, I don't take any joy in that, but being a prosecutor, sometimes you have to make these very, very difficult decisions. And that's why, you know, we place a lot of responsibility and power into the hands of these folks. And we hope they're doing the right thing. Right. Ultimately, it was the jury that decided here. But it is hard sometimes to separate the crime from the individual, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, so, and sadly, sometimes it works on the flip side, that if you have a career criminal, you sometimes maybe aren't looking for that human compassion yeah. because you're like, oh, 
career criminal and you've already right. made a judgment and ticked Correct. off that box. Yeah. Um, so Ian Ulian appealed his conviction, but California's second district court of appeals rejected Ian's contention that there were errors in his second trial. Now I'm going to quote now from the 28 page ruling. The justices wrote, quote, the jury could rationally conclude the defendant provoked the conflict. That would be Ian. We do not suggest that Stafford, that would be the cat lady, was blameless in this incident. It would be generous to say that her contact, that her conduct left much to be desired. Huh. I think yeah. the justices made it very clear yeah. that she contributed to sure. this, but the law is the law. And that doesn't mean that because you're being, I'm not going to say anything that that gives anyone else the liberty to assault you. Yeah. Yeah. According to the justices. Yeah. And I think they, I think they got it right. I mean, it, it, she was not a completely non-engaged a wallflower in this whole thing. You you can see even on the video, you don't have audio, but you see her jabbing her finger and giving him the business as much as she's taken it. And I think the I think the justices were right in their kind of assessment of it. I'm curious, after this case and you get this conviction, and it makes so many headlines. I mean, even Crime Watch Daily did an episode on this, which, by the way, everyone, we will link to in the description box if you want to see the whole report. And Pat Lalama did an amazing job on this. How did this affect your career or did it? <laughs> uh, so it's funny you asked that. Um, later that same year, I received an award from the uh, Association of District Attorneys for Outstanding Prosecutor, I think in large part because of that case. Really? And, yeah, I did. And then within a few weeks of that, I actually ended up having in my resignation and moving to private practice. So <laughs> <laughs> it was it was kind of the last big case I ever handled in the office uh, before leaving. And it was a it was a strange one to exit on. And so as a result of this, I mean, do you have a nickname because of it or do people still <laughs> I joke not. about it? I hope not. I probably, if they do, it's all behind my back. I sure hope not. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and hearing all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes and what was going on in both courtrooms. To me, this is the part about crime, criminal justice that is the most intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. How the sausage is made. Exactly, exactly. Well, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking with you about it. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. So much fun. Again, we will link to all of this, Josh. Thank you. Where can people find out more about you if sure. they, since you're in private practice now, if they have a cat situation yeah, that you please. can assist them with? <laughs> please. <laughs> I'm a cat expert. Um, <laughs> the, the website uh, for our law firm is worksmanjackson.com. They can find me there. I'm also on Instagram at Joshua E. Ritter. Wow. All right. Well, thank you. Of course, all of you, you can find our content and our other podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course on YouTube. And you can get regular updates for all of our programming by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. For now, I am your host, Anna Garcia. Thanks for joining us. And this is is True Crime Daily's My Favorite Case.